2: If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast,
0: you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad free listening, and early episodes too.
2: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Susan Kane. The author joins us to discuss the expressive power of emotions that might initially be dismissed as not the perkiest in our repertoire, melancholy, longing, and a lingering sense of the bittersweet. Susan Cain shot to fame in 2012 with her international bestseller, *Quiet: The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, in which she urged society to think differently about the undervalued introverts among us. Now she's back with another book asking us to reassess how we think about ourselves. Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. The book argues that by embracing the bittersweet at the heart of life, the sense that joy and sorrow are always paired, we can gain a heightened appreciation of everything from our relationships to pop culture. Anyone who finds familiar comfort or dare we say it, enjoyment in listening to their favorite sad song over and over again knows what this is all about. Talking of what can make us happy, make sure you check out our Q&A with the world's most influential psychologist, Daniel Kahneman. Daniel says that happy people can still certainly get happier with more money whereas unhappy people can't buy happiness with extra cash if you can answer why that is then maybe you might have a serious money maker on your hands hit subscribe on apple premium to hear more from our exclusive chat with daniel kahneman and you'll be directly supporting us in continuing what we do bringing you deep discussions smart debates and asking the big questions now back to today here's Shahida abari the writer academic and broadcaster talking to susan kane
0: season. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here with you we're so thrilled to have you. And I'm really looking forward to getting into the detail of the book. It's a really beautiful book, partly because bittersweetness is in some ways a very beautiful mm-hmm. sentiment. I think many of us know what you mean by it. And in fact, I was just talking to one of our backstage producers, Bella, and she was. She said that she was at her mum's house and she was cleaning out her childhood bedroom. And I said, that is the definition of bittersweet, isn't it? Something, you know, sort of tender and powerful and poignant at the same time. Same time, um, and I was thinking, bittersweetness is is the is the last night at the end of a great holiday when you've had an amazing time, but you also know it's the end. But but what you tell us, what, what is bittersweetness for you?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, those, those are two brilliant examples <laughs> that you just gave of it. But one of the things that I talk about in the book is the way that bittersweetness is those kinds of moments and experiences, the way you just. Said and so well illustrated. It's also in addition to that, it's a kind of state of being that exists regardless of the particular moment that we happen to find ourselves in. It's a kind of um it's a wreck a deep recognition of the way in which joy and sorrow in this world are forever paired. And that what comes with that recognition is a kind of deep joy at the beauty of the world. Um so. Like the book for me was really a a five-year quest to grasp the power of this way of being in the world. It's a, it's an almost melancholic state, but but it's a state that like if you look at our wisdom traditions, our literary and artistic heritages from all over the world and across centuries, you know, you find that there is there is this sense that that this bittersweet impulse, this almost melancholic impulse is attached in a profound way to creativity, to human connection, and even to transcendence. So it's, wow. it's really
0: all about that. Wow. It, it's powerful, bittersweetness. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reading your book and mulling over my own experiences of bittersweetness, I was wondering whether when we say this, it's joy and sorrow commingled, I wondered which way round is bittersweetness, the bittersweetness that you're talking about, the bittersweet state of being, is it when you are able to feel sorrow in joyful things or is it when you can feel joy in sorrowful things? Does that make sense? That's such an amazing question. No one's ever asked that before. And I (laughs) love that
1: question. It completely (laughs) makes sense to me. And what I'd actually say is that um, if you are inclined to this bittersweet <laughs> view, the answer is both. And yes, you know, like the, the, the epigraph that I chose for the book comes from Leonard Cohn, you know, who, as you know, I'm sort of obsessed with. And um, and, it, and it goes, there is a crack in everything. That's where the light gets in. So if you're inclined to bittersweetness, you know, you, you look at the troubles of the world and you also insist on seeing the 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 beauty and the joy. And the reverse is true also. You know, you're in a state where everything looks amazing and optimistic and beautiful and joyful, but you're also remembering the troubles and the sorrows. Like they 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 forever coexist. It's a it's kind of like deep recognition of that.
0: Yeah. Should we should we talk about Leonard Cohen straight up? As you say, he's in your epigraph, he comes up in the book. Why is Leonard Cohen the bard of bittersweetness? What is it about him?
1: Well, I mean, so for me personally, I I had had this kind of, you know, one way love affair um, with him since I was in my early 20s. So, you know, for, for very long, for decades, I never really knew why. I don't know that I tried to figure it out so much for a long time. I just kind of loved his music. But what I realized when I started writing this book is that his music and his his philosophy, I would say, are, are the embodiment of of this bittersweet way of being, you know, like his most famous song, Hallelujah, that everybody loves so much and is covered by so many different musicians. If you think about the heart of that song, he's talking about the cold and broken Hallelujah. So it's like the the juxtaposition between all that's broken and all that, like, you know, all, all that we praise and all that we love, so th- those two things go together. Um, and th- yeah, that, that, that I think is a, heart of everything he says you know he's somebody who like, he appears very gloomy you know there are jokes uh, by one of his record labels that they would have to hand out razor blades with one of his records you know a, a few um like a decade <laughs> or so ago then that, yeah. uh, that so that's how he appears but when you look underneath it it's it's not really about that it, it's really um a kind of transformation of pain into beauty and kind of always looking for transcendence within, within an acknowledgement of what is still broken.
0: Yes. He's a great example because lots of people will be able to relate, but also because he's, you know, he's so famously lugubrious, you know, that Hang Dong expression. And yet there is something in the work, the music that, that penetrates that works for us isn't it isn't there I I want to ask you more about music in particular Mm -hmm. in a moment Mm -hmm. but I I thought I might ask you about the bittersweet quiz yeah one of the many attractive things about the book is that you can do a quiz to find out your propensity for bittersweetness tell us about the quiz and how you devised it So the quiz,
1: you can take it in the book. It's also on my website at susancane.net. If people want to just go there quickly, it takes like one or two minutes. And um, it basically, it it asks you a number of questions, things like, do you draw comfort or inspiration from a rainy day, which may play differently in London? I don't know, because there's such a surfeit of rain may it may feel different um, (laughs) there. So I'll give you other examples. Questions like, do you often feel moved to goosebumps? Do you like to look at old photographs? Do you find them especially moving? Do do you react intensely to art, music, or nature? So it's questions like this. And what we find is that, and and I I developed this quiz together with the great psychologists, David Yadin at Johns Hopkins and Scott Berry Kaufman. And uh, we put it through all these different studies. And what we found is that from, from our preliminary results that people who score high in bittersweetness, meaning that they they tend to answer yes to the kinds of questions that I just gave you, also score high in a state called absorption, which predicts creativity, and also score high in states of awe and wonder and spirituality. And, and also there's a, a really strong correlation between bittersweetness and the state known as high sensitivity. You know, and like a, a highly sensitive person is somebody who, Kind of just like reacts intensely to everything that the world has to offer. It, it, so it makes sense, right? Like the 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 beauty of a sunset and um and, and an upsetting event. A highly sensitive person has really strong positives to the sunset in their reactions and really strong reactions to the negative event. So so the quiz kind of encapsulates I would say what a bittersweet sweet orientation to the world looks like and what it's associated with.
0: Yes. I, I don't want to, to put a spanner in the work so early, Susan, but I scored disappointingly low in (laughs) the quiz. I don't know if I was hungry or being grumpily realist, but I, I, I I scored low. I, I I tended toward the sanguine. That's what the category you call it. But as I read the book, I started to long for a bittersweet disposition because I could see in your argument the, the allure of it, the merits of it too. And I, I wondered, I mean, you've already said that bittersweetness is more than simply an emotion or an experience. You said it's a, a state of being, a kind of disposition. So, can we can we learn it, or, or can we unlearn it if we're too too bittersweet?
1: Yeah. Okay. Wait. I want to say a few things about that. I'm really glad okay. you asked that question. And and by the way, I um I was talking about the book with a, a good friend of mine, and she told me that she scored literally zero on the quiz. <laughs> so every single <laughs> one of the, every single one of the questions <laughs> like. So two things. One is yeah, I think some people are born with more of a bittersweet temperament, you know, they're probably born highly sensitive. And as we said, that that's a big correlation. And then there are some people who come to bittersweetness more with time, either because they've experienced kind of the sort of endless combination of trials and triumphs that life hands to us, or just kind of more of an exposure to the fragility of the world. So, so there are different ways to access this way of being. But having said all of that, I think it's also important to say my philosophy of life is that we, all of us have different superpowers, that there are different kinds of superpowers available to us. And our mythology teaches us this, right? Like some people are handed a lightsaber and some people are handed, you know, the ability like a Spider-Man to climb buildings or, you know, whatever it is, they're all different ones. And um, with bittersweetness, what I'm trying to do is shine a light on one type of superpower, one powerful way of being in this world that tends not to be as noticed or as celebrated given the way our culture is organized. So it's not to say it's the only superpower. It is It is one powerful way of being, one way of being that gives us a powerful gateway to creativity, connection, and transcendence. So if you are someone who scores low on that quiz, number one, that may change over time for you. And number two, there are many other types of powers on offer. This is one that, that I'm talking yes. about.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also, I think anybody who is alive, I think, you know, I, I scored low low, and I, I thought that I uh, maybe I don't have a heart, maybe I'm steely, but, but anybody who has lived knows what bittersweetness is, of course. Yes. And that's one of the attractive things about the book, because it speaks to an experience that all of us have had to some degree or another. And I think if you have a propensity for it, then you will feel seen by this book, certainly. Uh, One of the other touchstones in the book, uh, we mentioned Leonard Cohen, is C.S. Lewis. And there's Mm -hmm. a particular quote, the the inconsolable longing for we know not what. And this becomes a key for you to understanding something that takes you about your own life as well as bittersweetness. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, what
0: I, it's funny. I can't remember
1: when it was in the research and writing of this book that I came across C.S. Lewis's writings on longing. All I know is that when I did, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like what, what I've been experiencing all my life. And what I'm trying in a way to articulate in this book, this idea that that all beings come into this world with a kind of, or like primed to feel a kind of longing for a more perfect and beautiful world than, than this one. Um, and that manifests, we see the manifestations of this in so many different ways, you know, in, in so many of our, our religions, wisdom traditions, you know, there's the the longing for the garden of Eden, you know, the sense that we had been in Eden, and then we lost it. The longing for Zion, longing for Mecca. Um, my favorite version of it is from the, the Sufis, which who are the like the, the mystical version of Islam. And uh, the Sufis speak of the longing for the beloved of the soul. But then you see it, you know, in secular manifestations too, like Darthi in the Wizard of Oz, longing for somewhere over the rainbow. So this is like, and, and this is what C.S. Lewis talked about. He He talked about that the sweetest thing in all his life had been the longing. The thing that all of these artistic and religious traditions teach is that the more we access that state of longing paradoxically, the closer you, you get to that for which you long. And what is that for which we long? You know, so a, a religious explanation is that we're longing for the divine, but you could say we're longing for truth or love or beauty, um, like in in Homer's Odyssey, right? That there's the the ancient Greek word of potos, which means the longing for um, that which is most good and beautiful and true, and that's unattainable. And um, and so the Odyssey starts with Ulysses weeping on a beach. You know, he's like long he, he's seized by homesickness. He's longing for Ithaca, and it's understood that. It is that homesickness, it's that longing that causes the epic adventure to happen in the first place. So in our culture, we are taught to think of longing as a kind of dangerous state that we might be wallowing in, we might get mired in it. But what all these traditions show us is that longing is actually the state that catapults us forward, you know, like the the word longing literally means to reach for something, to grow longer, to take the adventure in the
0: first place. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> is it too early to, to get personal and ask you what you were longing for? Well, oh gosh, I mean, different things <laughs> at different
1: times of life, right? I, which I I think is what happens with life. You know, you're kind of like seized through one passage of longing through another, I'll tell you about one that happened for me kind of earlier in my life. So I used to be before I became a writer, I was a corporate lawyer, even though I had wanted to be a writer since I was four. and um, and, and there came a day, and, and and so I was like, you know, deep into the law thing, and I did it for about seven years. and And there came a day when this senior partner like knocked on my office door and sat down, the great big sigh informed me that I wasn't going to be making partner. And I received this news like in floods of tears, you know, it seemed to me like a big catastrophe, except that I ended up asking to take a leave of absence. And like two hours later, I was gone, just gone from the firm. And my life seemingly at that point started to come undone a little bit. Like I I thought I wasn't going back to law, so I didn't have a career. And I, a few weeks later, left a relationship that had always felt wrong to me, a seven year relationship. And so I'm now like, kind of like floating around, no career, no love, um, no place to live. And I fell into a kind of obsessive relationship with a musician, a lyricist, and um, he was a very lit up kind of person and whatever I, and and you know how these obsessions can be, like you want to shake them and you can't, there's nothing you can do. I guess it's called limerence, that, that state of being. And there was nothing I could do to extricate myself from this until one day I was talking with a friend of mine who I had been kind of regaling with, you know, endless stories of, of this person. And she said to me, you know, if you're this obsessed with someone, it's because he represents something you're longing for. She said, what are you longing for? And it was just that one question, like opened everything up. And I was like, of course, you know, I, I, I'm longing for that life, that as a writer that I had dreamed of since I was four years old. And it was so clear suddenly that that's what this person represented for me. He was like an emissary from my version of the perfect and beautiful world at that moment. And at that point, the obsession completely fell away and
0: I started writing for real and have never looked back since then. So yeah. It's an, it's a powerful question to ask oneself, isn't it? What mm-hmm. What are you longing for? I'm not always sure that we're in a position to answer it truthfully, but perhaps in... A bittersweet frame of mind, or listening to a Leonard Cohen song, or, or you know, watching. I was thinking about Brief Encounter being my Leonard Cohen. You know, Brief Encounter is the epitome of bittersweetness for me. Maybe there, you, we we enter into a state that we can answer those questions more more truthfully. Let me ask you about music. We started by talking about Leonard Cohen. M- music is seems bittersweet. In particular, I, I I was I mentioned Brief Encounter, and you know ninety percent of the bittersweetness of Brief Encounter is not just Celia Johnson leaving um, Celia Johnson leaving Trevor Howard, but it's the Rachmaninoff, isn't it? It's the Piano Concerto Number Two. You talk about Albanoni's Adagio in G Minor. What is it about music that hits the bittersweet spot? What does it do for us?
1: Yeah, and it it happens, especially uh, for music in the minor key, which is sort of by definition, you know, like getting you to a state where things are not fully resolved. So I think it gets us into that frame of mind of like, you know, the world we long for is over here, but I'm over here, Um, something like that. Um, But yeah, it's very interesting about music. Um, and, And musicologists and neuroscientists, all kinds of people have been trying to figure this out but we see it across all different musical cultures. There is something in, I don't know, you, you, you when you listen carefully to most of the music you love best, unless it's sort of like upbeat dance music, which is in a different category, it's almost always expressing some type of yearning. That, that's in a way it's primary function. And we actually know that when people describe the music that gives them a sense of goosebumps and chills and shivers, it's almost always the slower, sadder songs that do it. And the the people whose favorite songs are their happiest Play them about 175 times on average, but yeah. the people whose favorite songs are their saddest will play them 800 times. Wow! Yeah, and 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 they tell researchers that they associate this music with a connection to everything that's most sublime, you know, and wondrous. So I I don't know that anyone's ever truly been able to unlock just why that is, but I I do yeah. think of all the different art forms that music is the one that carries us to that bittersweet state of the sublime, most directly. It's like you're mainlining that.
0: I can go with you to this idea of the the sublime, the bittersweetness that gets us to something sublime. But I, I, this is a, a hard question. I, I, I wonder if there's also a risk of bittersweetness veering into sentimental. So the person, say for instance, a person who's listening to a Leonard Cohen song 800 times, Mm -hmm. are they accessing something sublime or are they wallowing in a certain kind of sentimentality? Is there a risk that this this propensity for the bittersweet might also end up being quite sentimental? What do you think? Yeah, no, I'm glad you're asking
1: questions like this. And it's interesting, this kind of question I've I've heard in various forms of like, I'm afraid that if I go to that place, like I won't get out. Yeah, I'm
0: wallowing in negative feeling or something. It's not necessarily sublime. It's just sort of almost, I don't know, self-indulgent.
1: Yeah, and the the word wallowing comes up. So I I totally get what you're talking about. I guess I would say like what I'm really talking about is a kind of, I don't even know if balance is the right word. I guess what I'm talking about being able to access... Our deep emotions, the joyful ones and the bittersweet ones. I, I'm sorry, and, and and the more longing ones. And the joyful ones, we don't really have a problem advocating for in this culture. The the problem that we have is advocating for the others. So I to the extent the, the this book is a recommendation. The recommendation is not to only go in the direction of sorrow or to only listen to that type of music if we're using music as the metaphor. It's to make space for that and to and to understand the sublime places that making space for it can take us, but not to do it at the exclusion of everything else. But I guess that's really the answer.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that's a persuasive answer. I as you were you were you were speaking that I was thinking about why is it that We have no opposition to the joyful, but there's a certain discomfort about sitting with the longing or the sorrowful. And I wondered if bittersweetness, as you're, you're, you're describing it and theorizing it here, is somehow opposed to contemporary psychological ideas of resilience that are circulating at the moment, that one must be strong and one must, you know, overcome feelings of sadness or sorrow and somehow be able to endure. I wonder if, Maybe we live in a modern culture that that's resistant to what it might take to be the weakness of bittersweetness.
1: Well, I think we mistake what resilience really is. I mean, there's nothing contradictory between celebrating resilience and wishing it for ourselves and everyone around us and embracing the bittersweet. That the two actually go together. It's it's when we it's when we shut out anything that has to do with our sorrows and longings that we actually become less resilient. Because what happens is these experiences have to go somewhere we're, we're humans. And as humans, we, we have all these different emotions. So if we don't acknowledge them and don't turn them into something beautiful or productive or whatever it is, then we end up taking them out on ourselves in the form of depression or anxiety or addiction or whatever, or we take them out on other people, you know, via uh, abuse or passive aggressiveness or what have you. So I think our, our culture in its And its wish to embrace strength is actually taking us to a less strong place, to a place that Mm -hmm. looks like strength, but actually is not. And then we end up coming undone in ways that we can't fully understand.
2: Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash intelligence. That's why over thirty-seven thousand companies have already made the move, and now, by popular demand, Netsuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. Netsuite.com/squared.
0: It, it, the, the book draws on many examples, many of them very moving. And we've been talking about bittersweetness as though we know what it is, as though it's a singular thing. But actually you you talk about the Spanish duende, put the Portuguese sodad um in in Hindu cultures, I think viraha, are these all the same things? is is bittersweetness universal or is it culturally specific in in the research that you've been doing?
1: Well, I guess what I'd say is that it, it does seem to manifest in all these different cultures. And, you know, whether there's a a, a subtle difference between the different terms and the different expressions that, that you just mentioned, they're certainly all like deeply related expressions of each other. You know, I, I don't know that there's that much difference really between like, you know, Portuguese saudade of a, like, um, you know, a kind of longing for a lost love or maybe a, a love that you've never even experienced in the first place, but there's somehow the, the longing for it between that or like, and, and the ancient Greek potos, for example, I don't know, you know, we might be able to to parse it out and make very small distinctions between these states. But I, but I think what's much more persuasive really is that what's fascinating is the way in which all these cultures come to it and and and, and have their own language and their own expression for it. Um, I would actually say in the English language, we I, I the English language has particular trouble with it. You know, the best we have is longing, but the word itself doesn't really do it justice, which is why you end up with C.S. Lewis like um creating a lot of words around it. It's not just longing, it's like the inconsolable longing for we know not what. And and then he ends up using the the German term, which I may be mispronouncing here, but it's something like sensucht, um, which which is an expression of the same term. And he uses that term, I think, because English doesn't really do it justice.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it? The last question of the bittersweetness quiz, not to give things away, is do you feel the ecstatic is close at hand? And I I had trouble with this trying to work out whether I did or didn't. But I want to ask you about ecstasy because that's a it's a religious term isn't it ecstasy mm. or it can be, it can be yeah. and i wonder if there is a and you talk about the sacred somehow being able to access the sacred or getting close to the sacred is there a particular relationship between religious belief and the experience of bittersweetness
1: yeah. And this actually wasn't a place that I expected to go, particularly when I first started exploring this. All my life, I've been on the agnostic side and 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 really remain there, except that what I found is particularly the, the mystical traditions of various religions know all about longing and, and its powers. They know all about it and they talk about it. And they talk about, they explicitly talk about longing as the pathway to the divine, and and you see this like maybe most explicitly in the Sufi tradition, and in the in the um, poetry of din Rumi, who is a 12th century Sufi poet, and you know, and he's constantly giving this message of like be thirsty. The answer is to be thirsty, and that's that's paradoxically how you get closer to the divine. There's one amazing poem. I'm like looking around because I feel like. I probably have it printed out somewhere around me. I have all this poetry up around me in my office, but it, it's this poem called Love Dogs that he wrote. And it's about a man who is praying to Allah. And then a cynic comes along and says to him, why are you praying when you never get an answer back? And And the man thinks about that and he's like, huh, well, that's actually a good point. And so he stops praying and then he falls asleep and he has a dream where in in which he's visited by khidr the 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 guide of souls and khidr asks him why did you stop praying and the man explains why and um and what khidr says to him is don't worry basically that you never got an answer back. And I'm actually finding this bit. It's taped up to my lamp here. It says um, that this longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. So this is an insight that comes to us from many of our traditions. And I feel like this poem says it in a way the most explicitly that this this state of longing far from, I mean, I, I, it obviously can take you in the direction of the wallowing that you were asking about before, but it can also take you in almost precisely the opposite direction of um, closeness to everything good and beautiful, you know, to love mm-hmm. or divinity or whatever expression we want to give to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I the, the one line of Rumi that I always remember is he says that failure is the key to the kingdom, mm. which I always think is much better than the Beckett fail, fail again, fail better, which seems nonsensical and a bit cruel, but um, failure being the key to the kingdom is very comforting, I think.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's actually very similar to the, that Leonard Cohn epigraph of, you know, the crack is where the light gets in. That, that kind of insight, you, you see this, you see this insight over and over again. It's not coming from nowhere. And, um, and, and I think a cynical take on it might be to say, well, that's a story that we tell ourselves when things go wrong, you know, to make ourselves feel better. But I don't believe that that's all it is. It can be that, but I don't think that's all of it.
0: Yes. Yes. I have to tell you, Susan, that we, at this stage, I often encourage people to ask questions, but I don't need to encourage our audience because very many of them have submitted questions. There are lots of them, and they all look challenging and thoughtful and intelligent. So should we try to answer some of those audience questions? Sure. Okay, let's see. So this is is a personal question, but perhaps you've got an answer to it, Susan. Great conversation, says Gemma. Thank you, Gemma. When did you first experience the sense of the bittersweet, and was it in childhood? So when did you first experience the sense of the bittersweet or what's the most memorable experience of it? That's a good question. I mean- it is, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I feel like this is something that I've known all my life and certainly for as long as I've been listening to music, which was since forever. I don't know. I mean, my father was playing music for me from the time I was a little kid. So I think I've always been aware of having this response, particularly to music. And then, but I, but I had one particular moment was probably the catalyst moment for writing this book, which is that it was later in life. It was when I was in my twenties um, and I was in law school and um, and some friends were picking me up in in our dorm so we could go to class together. And when they arrived at the dorm, I was like blasting out Leonard Cohen or somebody like that. And they, my friends thought that was hilarious that like I would be blasting from my stereo speakers, this mournful music you could say. And they were like, "Why why are you listening to this funeral music? And after that, I couldn't stop thinking about that question of like, first of all, why was it such a fitting subject for a joke in our culture, but also what, what was it about the music that was so incredibly compelling beyond just like, you know, I really love this song. It was something much deeper than that. So I'd say it's since that moment that I've been really thinking about that question and that, you know, that happened decades ago.
0: There's a a question that follows from that, the the, the music angle, certainly. Do you have a favorite bittersweet piece of music or painting?
1: Ah, well, um, I have many, many favorites. I've actually started a bittersweet playlist. Um, (laughs) So if you look for, I think if you just put in my name and bittersweet on Spotify or Apple Music, you can find many of my favorites and I'm sure I'll be adding to it over time. Yeah, I Oh, God, there's just so many. There's just so many. But just to stay with our Leonard Cohen theme, I'll give you famous blue raincoat. But yeah, many others
0: as well. That's one of my favorites, too. And this is from Ahmed. Why do you think people in Western cultures are so reluctant to admit to the negative aspects of their emotions? I I I. I enough, I would agree with you Ahmed in one way because, I, I reading your book, I was thinking Susan about my, my parents are Bengali Bangladeshi, and I would say that they are much they they would probably score much higher on the bittersweetness quiz than I, I have done growing up in in the UK, and I think there is a kind of a slight more kishness in Bengali culture, but they like to linger on on the bittersweet even in, on jo- joyful moments they they have cause for sorrow and but i would say this i'm married to a Scots, and the scots have a similar tendency too but why do you think if you think this do people in western cultures um have a reluctance to admit to the negative aspects of their emotions
1: i think there has become um a sense of of yeah of of a of of Believing and associating negative emotions with a lack of strength. I don't think that's accurate, but but I think that's what's happened. You know, the use of the word loser has increased astronomically over time, but it's been with us for quite, quite a while, um, at least dating back to the early 20th century. And once you start, even if you're not doing it quite consciously, once you start thinking of people and of ourselves in terms of, are you a winner or are you a loser? Then suddenly like any emotion that is associated in our, in our minds with loss becomes dangerous because, and, and distasteful because it would put you over on that side of the ledger. And I think that that's an issue that we're really grappling with right now. I also believe that this is starting to change in Western culture, that there is much more of an acceptance now and an interest in experiencing emotions of all kinds. And you actually see this in positive psychology itself. So, you know, like positive psychology, the whole idea of it is to look not only at the mental illnesses that, that people struggle with, but to examine the conditions in which people Mm. thrive and For the first few decades of its existence, that had been assumed to mean, you know, we're going to look at cheerfulness and optimism and gratitude and all these things, which are all wonderful. Um, But we were looking at that to the exclusion of everything else. Now there's a new movement of like a positive psychology 2.0 that's really interested in looking at negative and positive emotions and seeing how they interact together. So I do think that this is changing in Western culture, but um, like all changes, it will take some time.
0: It, the, the, and there's another question here. That's quite, this is a difficult question, but I, I think you have an answer to it, Susan. Is bittersweetness only something that quite privileged people can enjoy? What if there is no sweetness to be had in your life at all?
1: Yeah, this is something that I, I thought about quite a bit. And I don't I don't honestly know the answer, you know, I, I think there is probably, I mean, there's two separate things, you know, like if, if we think about something like trauma, you know, there's such a thing as post-traumatic growth and there's such a thing as, and I know people like this in my life who have experienced trauma to a point where it has kind of colored everything and it feels like something impossible to come out of. So I don't know the answer. I I I think there probably is a place beyond which you know the tragedies, the traumas are just too much for any one person to bear. I think that at the same time that I also want to offer the hopeful message that that we do know that there's such a thing as post traumatic growth and resilience and being able to turn to turn tragedy and misfortune into something into something meaningful. So both those things are true. And what I think what this view of the world offers also is a way to make sense of what it means to live in a world in which so many tragedies and so much beauty sit side by side. And like, what are you supposed to do with that? That, That's a question that I've never been able to figure out the answer to. And I find it helpful to have like a way of looking at the world that makes sense, that, that makes space for both.
0: Yes. Yeah. I can see how it May not be something that resolves the unrelenting awfulness of a person's life, but it might be something that mm, helps you to understand it in a different way. Perhaps I wonder if if bittersweetness is a a, a strategy, whether it's a, a, a whether it's some a kind of technique to have in your artillery to deal with the difficult things when they come. To be able to have that possibility.
1: I do think so, and it's a part in part because it's a way of connecting with the fact that humans since time immemorial have have been experiencing life with all its complexity and we're not alone in it you know we're connected to all the other humans who have always done that there's also like there's this one um parable that comes from the Kabbalah that I find really useful also for trying to make sense of these complexities, which is the idea in in this parable, the idea is that all of of creation was originally an intact and divine vessel that then shattered and that the world we're living in now is the world after the breakage, but that scattered all around us are the shards of light that came from this vessel. And we're all going to notice different ones. So you're going to spot something that looks to me like just a mound of of clay or mud is going to look to you like a shard of light and what we can each do is bend down and pick those shards of divinity or light up whenever we see them and i find that an incredibly useful way of like making sense of how to live in a world that juxtaposes so much suffering and so much beauty. And like, what are you supposed to do with both of those things? And and this is a way of like acknowledging the breakage and turning in the direction of the beauty or of the meaningful or something that you can do.
0: Yes. This is a question from Sachika and I think it follows on from mm. the conversation we've started here. Are there practical advantages to having a sense of the bittersweet? Does it make us better people or more creative people? Yeah, well, we did find... Um, the studies that we did around the bittersweet quiz
1: that there is an association between this tendency to bittersweetness and, and a tendency to creativity. And there's a whole host of studies that show this as well, like separate studies. Like in, in one of them, they uh, there's a bunch I can tell you about, but in one of them, they gave people movies to watch. And some people are watching happy movies and some watch sad movies and and some watched father of the bride or movies like that, or bittersweet wedding scene and um, and they found that the people who had watched the bittersweet movies performed the best on creativity tests that were given afterwards. So there's a number of studies like that. i And it's not really surprising when you think about it, because so much of what the creative act is, it it's basically it's basically a kind of alchemy. It's like making something out of nothing or turning x into y. And very often what we're doing is the x that we're trying to turn into y, You know, that X is a, starts out as a, a painful experience of some kind or something like that. And then we try to convert it and turn it into something meaningful or uplifting or beautiful or whatever it is that that's kind of the heart of the creative vision. So it's not really surprising that there would be this connection.
0: Yeah. This is a really good question. And I, I'm intrigued to know what the answer is. How do wit and humor fit into your concept of the bittersweet? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I kind of think
1: of them as of wit and humor as being orthogonal in a way, by which I mean, like not related one way or another, you know, that people have all different kinds of senses of humor and yeah, well, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to amend that somewhat because when you talk to many different comedians, I I would say that comedy is one manifestation of the bittersweet. That's the way I'm going to put it many comedians, what they're doing when you talk to them, that they, they, they've experienced something that bothered them quite a bit and their outlet for it or their transformation of it is that they're transforming it into comedy. So I guess I, I, I see it as like one more manifestation of what we do with, with
0: these life
1: juxtapositions.
0: Yeah, good answer to a tough question there. Can bittersweetness be a treatment for depression? I know in the book, you, you draw a distinction between, you're very careful here to draw a distinction between the melancholia of bittersweetness and depression, but this person is asking if bittersweetness can be a treatment for depression.
1: It's interesting. I don't know if I would say a treatment so much for it. And thank you for pointing out. Yeah, I I do want to be really careful to draw this distinction because there's nothing about d- depression that I recommend in, in any form. And I don't think we really know whether the bittersweetness that I'm talking about is a difference in degree or a difference in kind from depression, but it is quite different. So it's not that I would offer it as a treatment for depression, but what I would say is it can be a productive and transformative way of understanding your own sorrows and longings in a way that doesn't have to carry you to depression, but instead can carry you to a sense of being connected with other people and with what people have been talking about since time immemorial. And I'm thinking, just as an example, I'm thinking of a letter that I got from someone um, who'd read the book. And he said to me that he had had the same experience that I've had all his life. Uh, He would listen to this music and he said he would be overcome by what he called quote, that holy feeling, holy H-O-L-Y. And he's not a religious person, but that was the only way he could think to describe this feeling that overcame him in such a positive and uplifting way. And then he said he was actually someone who had occasionally suffered from depression and he started to avoid the, the holy feeling or the melancholic feeling because he had so much been sent the message that that would take him more in the direction of depression and he's realizing that actually the opposite is true like it, it, it that there's a way of embracing that feeling that carries you um carries you to to that which is best in your life as opposed to that which is worse so i think it's just a way of understanding these states in a more nuanced way than what we're usually offered
0: yeah and this is a interesting question I, you 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 mentioned it in our, in our conversation Um, Do you think people appreciate the bittersweet more as they get older and have experienced more happiness and more loss? So do we have a greater propensity for it as we get older? Yes, I
1: do believe that. I do believe that. And there was actually fascinating uh, research by um, a psychologist named Laura Carstensen. She's at Stanford and she works on, on longevity and aging and so on. And she has found that as people get older, they tend to become, they tend to have more gratitude, a deeper sense of meaning. She actually says they're happier in general than younger people. Like they're much less prone to anger or to like upsetness over silly things. Um, they're just much more contented with their lives. And, and she was trying to figure out what would cause the, this difference. And at first she assumed it was like some magical property of aging. You know, you hear of like, with age comes wisdom. Like, well, what does that really mean? What she started to realize is what actually gave rise to this condition, this positive condition was a sense of fragility. That when, when you're older, you are much more aware of the fragility of life. You know, you only have a few years left. You've experienced its highs and lows. You only have a few, few years left. What she found is that other people who are younger, who would also for different reasons come to to, um, be aware of that fragility, they had that same constellation of character traits of, of, of um, having a deeper sense of meaning and gratitude and all the rest of it. They were, they were just like the older people. Um, So the thing that they had in common was this awareness of fragility, which moving through life tends to give to us, even if we happen not to be born with it.
0: Yeah. The the next question is a personal one and you answer it in the book. So feel free to direct people to the book because you're very candid in the book, too, about your own experiences. So the question is, does your own personal and family history play into your appreciation of all things bittersweet? And that's from Joseph.
1: Yeah, I would say absolutely it does. You know, I, I think the the kind of source code for humanity, in a way, is that we all feel this a kind of fundamental pain of separation from that or who we love most and and like a desire for union, for reunion. That's what you see at the heart of all our religions. And in my case, I think because of my family history, both history of the generations that preceded me, a, a conflict, a, a very deep conflict that I had with my mother beginning in adolescence. I think all of those things primed me to be attuned to the bittersweet in a way that I probably would not have been otherwise, or it might've taken me longer to get there. And I think I don't think I can tell all those stories now. Like, yeah, it would just take too long to tell them and I can probably write them better than I can speak them. So I think I'll direct you to the book for a fuller fuller answer to that question.
0: Yes. And I can recommend that part of the book, certainly for people who are who, who want that understanding, because you are very open about that, which I think you must have to be in a book like this when we're talking about things that are, are personal to people. I think it, it demands that from the writer too, and you, you certainly do share that. Um, this is from Yulita, or Julita, forgive me if I've mispronounced it. Do you think most great artists are more susceptible to the bittersweet than average?
1: I do think many great artists are, yes. Um, and this is something people have noticed for time immemorial. You know, Aristotle was asking this question 2000 years ago, of like looking around and, and then asking, why is it that so many of our great poets, philosophers, politicians of the day, why do so many of them seem to have melancholy in their personalities? And, um, you know, and then you see like, there was one study of, uh, of kind of a collection of great artists that found that some forgetting the exact percentage, but an astonishingly high percentage of them had been orphaned in their childhoods had lost either one parent or both parents before the age of 18. So it's not to say um, by any stretch that this is a requirement of creativity. I would never say that. And again, it's not depression itself is actually, actually makes creative work much harder, but or if not impossible, but this quality of bittersweetness, which basically means being willing to expose yourself to all the different emotions, you know, the, the beauty and the joy and the sorrow, all of it. That's what often fuels great art.
0: Is there any difference uh, we're coming to the end, I should say. So we're exhausting you, Susan, but um, these are two very good questions and we're determined to get them in. Is there any difference between being optimistic and being open to bittersweetness? It seems to me there must be a difference here.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I do think you can be, <laughs> that's a really interesting question. I do think you could is, be um, an optimistic bittersweet. They just play out really differently. Like, my husband's kind of like this. My husband's like, really, really very cheerfully optimistic. If you met him, you would never think of him as a bittersweet person, but there is something that fuels the work he does. That's like, um, that he's done in his life where it's, it's kind of, he, he worked for many years as a, a UN peacekeeper and, and did a lot of work in various war zones and, and so on. And, and I think he really was fueled by an acute awareness of the difference between the world we long for and the world as it is. You know, it's something like that, even though his his demeanor is very optimistic.
0: Yeah, maybe that goes back to my question about whether it's mm. seeing the sorrow and joyful things or the joy and sorrowful things that maybe the emphasis falls differently. And your husband sounds a little bit like me, that maybe went less bittersweet and more sweet. Bitter, we see you know, there's a sweet bitterness. To our view of the world, rather than a bit of sweetness. Well, you know, it's um, funny that you say. Do you know the
1: um the book The Prophet by uh, Khalil Gibran? Khalil Gibran. Yeah, 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 and he has a poem in there that's all about joy and sorrow, um, and how they're forever, you know, together. And he says in that poem something about you know some of you will say that joy is the greater, and some of you will say that sorrow is the greater. But he's basically saying you know forget which one is greater. They're they're together. That that's kind of the point yeah. of the poem. So I was thinking of that as you're describing yourself.
0: (laughs) Um, And the last question, this is a nice question that loops us back to your work on introversion. Is there any overlap between introverts and people who experience bittersweetness? Well, I have to say this totally
1: surprised me because I expected there to be um, a big, a a big correlation, right? That many introverts would be bittersweet and vice versa. Um, but when we did the studies, we didn't actually find that. We found, as I said, that the correlation was between bittersweetness and high sensitivity. Um, and many highly sensitive people are introverts. So it's all a bit of a mush there. Um, but I do think that's where the that's where the relationship is. Now, having said that, I will also say I I thought when I was writing bittersweet that It was a very different book from Quiet and it is, but the letters that I get from people are so similar to what I got with Quiet in the sense of like, of people saying, oh, this is identifying a way that I have felt all my life and never been able to put into words or never felt like it was socially acceptable to talk about. So there's a big overlap in that way too. Yeah.
0: Thank you for that. And thank you to our audience. I'm so sorry if I haven't managed to get to your questions. I did my best to squeeze them all in. If you haven't managed to ask your question, you could tweet it to us using the hashtag IQ2. And of course, if you've enjoyed this question, you could also say so on Twitter too. Thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you, Susan, to our audience and to Intelligence Square.
2: If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion, and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month ad-free listening and early access to currently available via apple podcasts you just need to hit the subscribe button and if you're not an apple user don't worry we're working on something for you too thanks for being a listener supporting intelligence squared and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too